Welcome to Wednesday night, midweek studies, continuing through the book of Revelation. We're uh, studying the book of Revelation, and uh, just a reminder, that book is one of, is the only book that comes with a blessing. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And I tell you, time is near. And uh, uh, just the, if you watch the evening news, and, and we don't have TV and um, mainly because I'm cheap, right? And so what we do is we just stream the news, and we get it from a couple different sources, but it's just amazing what, uh, what kinds of things are happening and, and the alliances that are being made and the agreements, and, and it, is, it is so pointing to the culmination of everything. And so uh, it is, it is, um, the time is near. And so um, we'd like to claim this blessing that Revelation brings. I'm a school teacher, so what do I have to do is we need to do a review. Okay? All right? So we'll do this corally. I'm not going to ask you to... I, I have some papers. I could pass these out, but I won't. So we'll just do it corally. So chapter 1 describes John's vision of what? Vision of Christ. Everyone say Christ. All right. Let's do that again. Chapter 1 describes John's vision of... There you go. Good. All right. There's got one done. All right. Um, chapter two and three. This is an easy one. The seven. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Think about it. Let's... Okay. Chapter two. This is an easy one. Chapter two and three include the seven letters to the seven. There you go. All right. All right. Oh, ooh, I saw that next question. Woo. All right. So the church is in order. Who can do that? I gave you a hint. Remember that? ESP, TSP, L, right? So what is the first E? Ephesus. And then the S is Smyrna. And then the P, Pergamus. All right. The T, Thyatira. S, Sardis. Uh, And then our church? Philadelphia, of course. And then L would be? Laodicea. There you go. So there's, there's, our, uh, there's our seven churches in order. Okay? You know that's going to be on the final, so you've got to know that. All right? Okay. The location of chapter 4. Think back. Chapter 4 was the blank room of God. What was it? Throne room. Not the living room. Yes, it was the throne room of God. All right? Uh, and uh, lastly, no, I can't say that. There, John saw 24 what? Elders and four living Creature. Oh, you guys are awesome. All right. Who's your teacher? Oh, yeah. All right. All right. All right. Focus of chapter 5 was the scroll with seven seals. seals. Very nice. All right. So I'll give you an A today. All right. But these will be on the final. All right. Last week we learned that chapters 6 through 19 are described as what we would call the Great Tribulation. And before we go any further, we need to look at the big picture. And we're going to look at that big picture through an amazing prophecy in the book of Daniel. So we're going to look at this um, great tribulation through the lens of chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. So real quick, if you turn your Bibles there, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And you thought you were at a revelation study, right? All right, let's pray. Father God, you are amazing. Um, As we read your word, it is just, uh, it blows us away just how perfect it is. And we thank you for giving us all that we need in your word. All the guidance, all the answers, all the history, all the wisdom. We thank you. We praise you. 
Please make us a student of your word and give us a thirst for your word that we just can't uh, quench. Give us an excitement for your word. Every detail is truth. We lift this evening to you, Father, and we invite you to fill this place. God, many of us in our body are hurting, and uh, we ask for your touch tonight. We pray that those that are hurting physically, those that are hurting spiritually, those that are uh, suffering financially, those that are those that just need a touch from you, Father, we, we ask for that right now. We ask specifically for healing for Antoinette. We ask specifically for healing for Alex and, and just the things that are going on. We just ask for your touch. We need your touch, Father. We, we, we love that we can jump up in your lap and, and, and chat with you and ask for that touch. So, Lord, we're here and we just, uh, we just plead. We love you. We praise you. We lift this evening to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All righty. So Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27, is just it's an amazing piece of prophecy. Uh, it's called the 70-week prophecy of Daniel, and, and it's divided into four parts. And this is a big picture of it, and, and I'll come back to this. Oh, good. I didn't know how big it was going to be on the screen. But um, we'll, we'll come back to this, and, and we'll walk through. Basically, the, the history of Israel, Daniel says, is 70 weeks long. Now, we'll talk about what those weeks mean, but 1 through 69, and then an interval, and then a 70th week, and then the second coming, and then the millennial reign. And so you kind of you get the sequence of the events that are happening. And so uh, we're going to talk through this, and you'll get a better understanding of, of what Daniel's talking about. Now, the scope... Um, well, the, the last four verses of Daniel 9 are 9, 24 through 27. And so in, in 9, 24, it, it describes the scope of the entire prophecy. Okay, so you have to read it in pieces. 9, 25 is the 69 weeks of years, and we'll talk about that. It, it's very Jewish. In 9, 26, there's an interval between the 69th and the 70th week. And then in 9, 27, we'll read about the, the 70th week. And so let's look specifically at Daniel 24. And and so it talks about the scope. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Wow, that sounds amazing. That's exciting news. So this is what the angel Gabriel is revealing to Daniel. He's telling him basically, you know what, Daniel, at the end of these 70 70 weeks, good things are going to happen, right? Iniquity is going to be forgiven. Prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And best of all, the most holy one, Jesus Christ, will be anointed and received as king. That's really good news. That's what they've been waiting for for thousands of years. And so Gabriel continues in 925. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And so to understand this verse in verse 25, you need to know a couple things. A week of years may, may sound strange to us, a week of years, but Hebrew traditions include a week of days, a week of weeks, a week of months, a week of years. All right. All that week means it means seven. It means seven of each. And so a week of years would be seven years. All right. 
Back then, all ancient calendars were based on a 360-day year, typically 12, 30-day months. Now, that calendar has changed through, through, through the, the, the time. Lots of people did lots of things. They added months. They added days. I mean, there's a possibility that the planet shifted and we had to add days to keep the seasons on, and that's a whole other issue. But um, basically, the ancient calendars were built on that 360-day year. And um, at the time of this prophecy of the city of Jerusalem, it was in ruins. It was, it was just in pieces. And, but it was destined to be rebuilt. And so the angel Gabriel gave Daniel this mathematical prophecy. As a science guy, I loved this. When I first heard this, it blew me away. It says, um, uh, Gabriel gave Daniel this mathematical prophecy and then announced the interval between a forthcoming commandment to rebuild Jerusalem, including the walls, to the introduction of the Messiah, when Jesus would show up as king. And so, to do the math, and it, when, when, um, when Gabriel says there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, if you do the math, the day of the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem to the presenta- presentation of the Messiah was a total of 173,880 days. Now, as a science guy, I love that it's perfect, right? I mean, it it didn't say, oh, yeah, a few years down the road. No, no, no. It's 173,880 days. I always thought it would be cool to to have a T-shirt made, 173,880 days. People would say, what's that? Oh, (laughs) let me tell you. (laughs) You know, I think that would be cool. So the trigger to start the countdown was the authority to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, including the walls. And that came from a decree from Artaxerxes Langmanish. He was the king of the Persian Empire. And that was given historically, March 14th, 445 B.C. Okay, historically, that's, that's, that date is set. They knew exactly when that, when, when that was given. Now, through history, there were several previous decrees that um, you know, concerned the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But the only one that was granted with the authority to rebuild the city and including the walls was this one. And it wasn't until Nehemiah succeeded in obtaining permission to rebuild the walls and Jerusalem, um, well, the walls of Jerusalem, that it was finally accomplished. And you can read all about that in the book of Nehemiah. It's an amazing read. He was quite the manager. He was the ultimate in project managing. Um, the completion of these days falls on the exact day that Jesus was presented as Messiah the King. And Scripture describes several times that the people wanted to make Jesus the King. Hey, let's, let, let, let's, let's make him King now. Let's do it now. And, but Jesus would say, you know what? My, mine hour has not yet come. And he wouldn't allow it. Sometimes he would walk through the crowd. Sometimes he would just disappear. But he wouldn't allow it until one specific day. And not only did he allow it, he arranged it. That day we know as Palm Sunday. Right? That day we know as April 6, 32 A.D. It comes to no surprise to all of us that from that March day to that April day is how many days? 173,880 days exactly. Okay? Pretty cool. You know? And so... I mean, it, it's on one hand, it's really cool to hear that. On the other hand, it's kind of a bummer that the Jews didn't recognize it, right? 
um, you know, they, we can go into the whole Palm Sunday issue and, and how they worshipped him, and then a week later they were crucifying him. And so uh, it's, um, it's an amazing thing. And that's why Jesus wept. He, you know what? He wept because you didn't notice. You didn't know. When I had told you, you know, years before, you had the book of Daniel. Why didn't you know? Right? Gabriel continues... Um, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So Gabriel says that Messiah will come, and yet he's going to be cut off, but not for himself. Uh, he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. Jesus died for us. Jesus died for our sins. And the Messiah came, he was rejected by Israel, and then he was cut off for our sins, exactly as the prophet declared. Then Gabriel says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Alrighty. Now, if you look at the little picture here, so the end of this 69th week was when Jesus was, was uh, honored, was, was proclaimed Messiah. And then during this interval, Jesus was crucified, and the temple and Jerusalem was, was destroyed. And in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. The temple was burned. And it's interesting that, that it was built, that it was burned and not just destroyed because what happened was the inlaid gold that was in everything that had to do with the temple, in the walls, in the implements, all of that gold got so hot that it melted. And it melted and poured in between the cracks of the floor tiles, right? And the Roman soldiers were told to remove all of the gold. And so in order to do that, they had to tear up everything. And let me think. Somebody said not one stone remained upon another. Who said that? Yeah, Jesus said that, right? Jesus said that. So the interval between verse 25 and 26 presently is 1,983 years. That's the interval. That's this, this space right here, right? Verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So after 69 weeks, Messiah came, but there's still one week left in the history of Israel. At the time, the prince of the people, we call him the Antichrist. He's a charismatic, influential, intelligent world leader. He's going to appear on the scene. He's going to institute a seven-year policy that will, in, that will solve you know, all of the Middle East conflicts. Everything that is going on through the Middle East is worldwide. Everybody knows. It's interesting that the whole world knows what's going on in this little, little, tiny country. Right? And, and that uh, uh, he's going to institute this seven-year treaty that will solve the conflict. He's going to rebuild the temple after it's been destroyed. He'll arrange for sacrifices. Basically, he's going to be the Jewish Messiah. But we'll say with a small m. right? Because... He's fake. He's, he's not the real Messiah. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to, sac to sacrifice and offering. And on the, wing, on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So basically, through that seven years, halfway through the treaty, 
Three and a half years later, he's going to go into the temple and he's going to cause the sacrifices to cease. He's going to set up an image of himself or an image of Zeus and he's going to demand that it be worshipped. And uh, Matthew 24 calls this the abomination of desolation. And when this happens, the Jews are going to say, wow, what have we done? You know, what have we allowed? What have we been doing? And when the Antichrist realizes that the Jews are no longer going along with his program, the Antichrist will rage war against all of Israel. And for three and a half years, hell will literally break loose on this planet. All right, so you can kind of get the idea. So here's 69th. Here's the interval. The temple is destroyed. Right here, Scripture talks about this is where we leave. This is our rapture. And then the 70th week is when the Antichrist comes on the scene. Three and a half years, he's all right. He's got things under control. He's, he's, he's a, a brilliant politician. He's uh, everything that the world needs. And then three and a half years into that seven year, that 70th week, begins the Great Tribulation. All of a sudden, he's not going, uh, or the Jews aren't going with his program anymore. So, we've already seen the first 69 weeks come to pass historically. And when is that 70th week going to start? It could begin any time. Any time. Before it does, Jesus is going to call, up, call us up into heaven. What is he going to say? He's going to say, come up hither. Right? That's what he's going to tell us. Come on up here. And then for seven years, we'll be in heaven getting to know him and worshiping him. Can't wait. The church was not in Daniel's first 69 weeks, and so neither shall she be in Daniel's 70th week. That's why Jeremiah calls it the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is another name of Israel. So Revelation chapter 6 through 19 is an elaboration of the events during the 70th week of Daniel. We find that in chapter 9. So that's what we're getting ourselves into. All right. So tonight, chapter 5, no wait, we're in 6. Tonight, sorry, wait, we've done that. Chapter 6, the fireworks begin. All right, here we go. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Verse 5, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And the power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by beasts of the earth. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony 
which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, were completed. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Wow. Lots going on. Sounds pretty terrifying. Glad we're not going to be here. Right. Let's jump in. Revelation chapter six, not five, chapter six, verse one. Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow. So chapter six through 19 describes a seven year period of the tribulation. And so this breaking of the first seal is the official beginning. It begins with the opening of the first seal and notice that it's one of the four living creatures that calls to John to come and see. Not only get over here, it's like, check this out. And we'll also see that the elders explain to John about heaven and the living creatures explain to John about what's going on on earth. So they're kind of like tag team tour guides. If they're talking about heaven, then uh, John's talking to the living uh, living creatures um, and on earth uh, they... uh, I got that backwards. Elders explain to John about heaven and living creatures explain about what's going on on the earth. Um, When John looked, he saw a man on a white horse. Now, some people who take their interpretive clues from cowboy movies, who do they suspect this is? Yeah, they they say, oh, white horse must must be Jesus. Okay, not so much, especially when you see who he's riding with. Right. Who's his posse? All right. It's, It's not who you would expect. Jesus does return on a white horse, but we're not going to see that until Revelation 19. Uh, The man on the horse is actually a satanic director who attempts to imitate everything about Jesus. We call him the Antichrist. He has uh, lots of other titles, and and we'll look at those specifically. Um, Initially, we might develop a a, a mental picture of somebody with a bow, right? You'll notice that there's no arrows, Um, but uh, what's interesting here is the word bow is the same in the Greek that's used for a rainbow, right? And think about what the rainbow was back in Genesis. It was a promise that God wouldn't destroy the earth with a flood anymore, right? Not again. And so really that, that, that word bow could mean an agreement or a covenant. And so in this case, this bow that this guy has could be an agreement between Israel and Palestine, you know, that, that peacemaking peace. And so... Um, Israel, our Antichrist will come on the scene and negotiate this new covenant between Israel and Palestine. This covenant will be a seven-year peace treaty. Yay, peace in the Middle East. And, and uh, what a miracle. This man's a genius. All right. Verse 29. And a crown was given to him 
Now, the Greek word here is Stephanos. And Stephanos is, is that wreath that's made with olive branches. You've seen, you know, back in the Olympics, they would give them the wreath and they would wear that. And that, that was Stephanos. And, and this Stephanos was made of olive branches and it only lasted a short time and it wasn't permanent. Um, this guy wears a Stephanos. Um, Jesus will wear a diadem. All right? A diadem is a permanent crown. Have you ever sang the song, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name? And wonder... What is a diadem? Me do. And it's like, wait, diadem. It's the permanent crown of royalty. And that's what Jesus is going to wear. All hail, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. I thought you were going to go into a course and crown him. Anyway. All right. Verse 30, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And so uh, this final satanic dictator will be more terrible than all of the other dictators that you can think of. If you think of Hitler and Stalin and Idi Amin and Mao Zedong, and, and, and we'll talk about them a little bit later, he's going to rule over men, over men as, a, as a false messiah. He's going to lead men in an organized rebellion against God. Uh, if, you, if you know your Genesis, he's going to remind you of a man called Nimrod. Okay? Nimrod, this, this guy's like Nimrod II. All right. Nimrod was the first warrior, but he was a warrior against God. There are thir- 33 allusions to the Antichrist in the Old Testament, and we're going to go through each. No, I'm kidding. All right. um, here's a few. Uh, the, Old, uh, the Old Testament describes the, the Antichrist as seed of the serpent, uh, idle shepherd, the little horn, prince that shall come, the willful king. These are all descriptors of the, uh, of the Antichrist. There are also 13 allusions of the Antichrist in the New Testament. Um, he's called the beast, the false prophet, the Antichrist, the pseudochrist, the lawless one, the man of sin. He's called the son of perdition. Um, he's going to be a pretty amazing man. I think we won't be here, but everybody else is going to be pretty impressed. I mean, he's going to be an intellectual genius. And you can see the scriptures that, uh, that describe that. He's going to be a pers- persuasive order. He's going to speak to the masses and, and draw them in. He's going to be a political manipulator. He's going to be a commercial genius. Right? He's just going to make everything work. He's going to be a military leader eventually, not right away. He's going to be a powerful organizer. He's going to be a religious guru. He's going to be able to appeal to both Jew and to Muslim alike. He's going to have to. He's going to be the most attractive guy that the world has ever seen. His physical description is in Zechariah 11 through 17. And we'll take a closer look at this guy along with, you know, the wound he receives, the mark of the beast, the barcodes and all of that. And we'll look at uh, we'll look at all of that in Revelation 13. Um, If you think about it, today's political and social scene is just primed for the emergence of such a political leader. Of all the things that are going on in the world, the world is aching for somebody to bring everything together. Uh, Think about all the world's issues that need to be solved. And all that waits is for the Lord to allow it. Because it's all his timing when he takes his church, us, from this earth. Because guess what? Scripture describes that the Holy Spirit is presently restraining the Antichrist. He can't do what he would like to do until we are gone. The Holy Spirit is removed through the rapture of the church. And at that point, the Antichrist is going to have free reign. 
Second Thessalonians 2, 6 through 7, it reads, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already going on. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So when the Holy Spirit is gone, that's when the restraint is over. So how is this guy riding a white horse, carrying a bow, and wearing a crown? How is he going to conquer Okay, well, guess what? Bible tells us. Daniel eight twenty three through 25, it says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he will cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. (laughs) That's amazing. He shall destroy many in their prosperity, and he shall even rise against the prince, capital P, of princes. He shall be broken without human means. So this guy's a schemer. He's a politician. He's a peacemaker. And like I said, he's going to be a military leader, but he's not just yet. And you know what? This is exactly what Jesus said would happen in John 5:43. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And when they do receive him, look who he, come, look who he brings along. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. So this writer doesn't need to bring war and destruction. All he needs to do is take peace from the earth. Once this peace is taken, men rush in and war and destruction, it happens what we would call naturally, right? And so peace is not a natural state of of relations between men. Peace is God's gift to man. We don't really realize that until it's gone. Notice that this authority is granted to the horseman. That is, it's directly or indirectly a judgment of God. And that the people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Now, it comes to no surprise that we live in an age of war and conflict. And since uh, World War II, there have been more than 150 wars of one kind or another, Presently, I, I just looked it up online and said, hey, how many you know, wars do we have going on? Presently, there are ten wars and eight serious armed conflicts. Now, I'd love to see the definition between the difference between the two, right? Um, and, and so uh, there, there, there's so much uh, killing going on. Verse 5 When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Now, the color black is often connected with famine. And we see this in Lamentations 4, 4 through 8, and Jeremiah 14, 1 through 2. And the scales symbolize the need to carefully measure and ration food. And this speaks of a time of scarcity when things aren't, Costco, right? I mean, when, when you're worried about the little things. You know, it's crazy to think that we already have famines to a certain degree. And the, the real sad thing is that most of them are due to the difficulty in getting food to where it's needed. 
And that's because of wars and factions and, and policies and politics. It's like we can't get it to where it needs to go. Two-thirds of the world today is living under starvation conditions. There are very few nations that have any type of surplus of food. Just imagine what would happen if there was a full-scale nuclear war and it was fought and all of the food supplies became contaminated and inedible. It's not hard to imagine how a worldwide famine could happen. It is just like that. Verse 6, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, if you look at the, 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 the cost ratios, these prices are about 12 times higher than normal. Okay? 12 times. So that'd be like, okay, gas is $48 a gallon. Okay? Are we going to be driving much? No, no. It means that it would cost... Literally, in, in that day, it would cost a day's wage to buy the ingredients for a loaf of bread. A day's wage to buy a loaf of bread. And this describes a time when uh, you know, life's going to be reduced to the barest necessities. Notice that it talks about barley. Now, barley, you can get three times as much. But normally, barley was used to feed the livestock. But if things get that bad, hey, well, I could uh, you know, become accustomed to the taste of barley. But we won't be here. Then it says, and do not harm the oil and wine. Now that's interesting because the nicer things will still be available for those who can afford them. There's still going to be oil and wine that shouldn't be harmed. So, you know, it becomes obvious that the rich get richer and the, and the poor get destitute. It just, you know, the gap continues to spread. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse. Now, the Greek word here translated pale is chloros. Okay? Chloros is the same word that we get chlorine or chlorophyll, you know, things that have to do with green. Um, and, you know, chlorine is like a bleached green. And so just imagine a bleached green horse. This is an ugly horse. All right? For good reason. All right? And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. So these last two writers, they show that there's a tremendous death toll from the dictatorship, the war, the famine, and other calamities you know, that were described by the previous three horsemen. There's a lot of death. Our century has seen hundreds of millions uh, of people that were killed by dictators, war, and famine. Um, Idi Amin, he was called the butcher of Uganda. He killed an estimated half million. That sounds huge until you read about Adolf Hitler. He's responsible for the death of about 17 million. And, and that sounds humongous until you read about Joseph Stalin. And he's responsible for the death of uh, estimated 23 million. And, and that sounds just out of control until you read about Mao Zedong, who's uh, responsible for the death of an, of an estimated 78 million people. Okay? Yet this will pale in comparison to the death toll coming in the wake of this ultimate dictator. You know, Hitler's reign took the lives of about one out of every three Jews. Zechariah 13, 8 through 9 says that the next one will take the lives of two out of every three. Right? Zechariah says, 
And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. You know, that's the whole reason for the tribulation. It's for that remnant to say, the Lord is my God. No wonder that Jesus said of this time in Matthew 24, 21, he said, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. You know, it's going to be bad. It's going to be the worst that it has ever been, and it's going to be the worst it will ever be. And I'm so glad that we're going to be watching from heaven. You know, back in chapter 4, we learned a little, a little gang sign flash. What was that? There we go. What does this mean? Remember that? We're told to comfort one another. You thought I'd never bring, bring that back, right? All right. We said, we're told to comfort one another with these words. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, it says, For the Lord himself will de- descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead will, in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together and with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Amen. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Right? Comfort one another. Don't forget. Because as we're going through all of this, man, this is so easy to get you down, to, to start having you question, to start, oh my gosh, why does that happen? Because... Scripture says God has his reasons, right? We just have to keep reminding ourselves. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Revelation 6, chapter chapter 6, verse 8. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Now, the phrase beasts of the earth, it's interesting. It's therion in the Greek. And, you know, it, it doesn't mean gigantic or huge. It's not lions and tigers and bears, oh my. It, it's something frightful of any size. Can you think of something that could be microscopic, that could do even more damage than lions and tigers and bears, right? You know, I think about Ebola, anthrax, HIV, bird flu, measles, who knew, Right? All of these are caused by something microscopic, and this could be describing a pestilence. Through these writers, a quarter of the Earth's population will be killed. And presently, our Earth is populated by a little over 6 billion people. Do the math. That's a lot of people. If a quarter of the Earth's population is destroyed in the fourth seal, it would represent the greatest destruction of human life ever recorded even greater than the flood. I used to think back, wow, you know, the water just covers the earth and, you know, just Noah and his family are in the ark and all of these people are killed. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Notice again that the power is given to the horsemen. It's given by God. And though all hell is literally breaking loose on the earth, God's in control. Remember, who has the seals? Who has the scroll in his hand is taking these seals off? God's in control. 
Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, were, was completed. And so in the fifth seal, the scene changes from heaven to earth. And John sees this vision of those that are being martyred for their faith in Christ, and they're being described as being under the altar. Now, it's interesting because that's being consistent with Old Testament uh, Leviticus 4.7 and Exodus 29.2, where the sacrifices are poured under the altar. The introduction of these martyred dead in heaven at this point, immediately after the fourth seal, seems to imply that these martyrs have come specifically from the tribulation scene that we just read about. Okay, These are new martyrs. And I don't give too much away, but it's confirmed in chapter 7 where another picture of a martyr dead of the tribulation is given. And we're also going to read about it in chapter 13 where death is the penalty for not worshiping the beast. And that's something you may uh, recognize and I bet you can't wait for that. Um, It seems that martyrdom in those days will be as common as it is uncommon today. I mean, there are some martyrs. We have martyrs today. We're, we're, we're reading about ISIS and beheadings, and those are martyrs. And so it's, it's not uncommon, but just flip it, and it's going to become as common as it is uncommon for us. So things are getting pretty bad. The bow on the force, first horseman is broken. Blood flows. Famine follows. There could be disease, sickness everywhere. So who does the world blame? Because that's what the world does. It blames. They blame the believers who come to Christ during the tribulation. That's why they're martyrs. And you know what? This is not a new idea. It's not. If you think back, read some historical uh, articles on the Black Plague. One out of every four people died during the Black Plague. The one group of people who were spared were the Jews. Today we know it was because they simply followed biblical principles for hygiene. They did what God told them to do. Surprise! And they lived. But society was convinced that the Jews were the reason for the, for the plague and, uh, and persecuted them. Verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. You know, it would be difficult to paint any scene more terrifying than the opening of the sixth seal. You know, we are so used to having things the way they are. And just imagine... Everything that has to do with everything is different. Okay? We, we're so used to a linear life. And when, you know, oh man, 3.30 got closed down today. I had to go around. Right? All right? We are so used to a linear life. Just imagine if things, when things actually just fall apart. All of the elements of this great catastrophic judgment of God, they're, they're present. A great earthquake the sun becoming black, the moon becoming like blood, the stars of heaven falling like ripe figs. 
the heavens depart, departing like a scroll, and, and every mountain, including ours, an island moving. That's amazing. What's more amazing, and it's your homework tonight, is to read Matthew 24, 4 through 31. And Jesus is going to describe in Matthew 4 through 30, 24, 4 through 31, he's going to describe the same types of things in the same sequence of things. It's a pretty amazing read. Here John describes the darkness of the sun as black as sackcloth of hair. And, uh, you know, we've talked about some black goats in, in a previous church. Uh, and they were used to make sackcloth and tents in his day. And so the, the sun becomes black. And, and this could depict a solar eclipse, something coming in the way. Or it could uh, be a massive dust storm by a volcanic explosion. You know, it's amazing when we get volcanic explosions and that dust and ash goes, you know, 50,000 feet into the air and... Uh, it, it, it throws curves at everything from, you know, the satellites to the airliners. Okay, it, it, it's big. When we think back to Exodus, the ninth plague covered Egypt with a darkness which even may be felt. That's the way it's described. Now, that's dark. A few weeks ago when we were out at the men's uh, camp out, it was kind of fun. We went into these mines locally, the silver mines that were there. And, uh, and so we went back as far as we could. And then Adam, he says, now turn off your lights, right? And we turned off our lights and talk about dark. I mean, you could put your hand like this and not see it. It was, it was, that's, that's dark. And so, I don't know, you know, that, that ninth plague is, is a thick darkness described in Exodus 10, 21 and 22. I don't know. Perhaps God's going to repeat that and it's going to be even on a grander scale. I don't know. Can you get any darker than this? I don't know. Maybe. Whatever the case, visibility is going to be severely limited even during daylight hours. Talk about something nonlinear. John talks about stars falling to heaven and could describe, this could describe meteor showers. And uh, this, this is amazing, this shot. In Arizona, and there's a huge meteor crater in the desert between Flagstaff and Winslow. And... Uh, just think one meteorite can do an amazing amount of damage. Could you imagine if something this big landed anywhere close to L.A. or anywhere close to any major cosmopolitan city? I mean, talk about mayhem, talk about disaster. It would be huge. And here is described as uh, the stars of heaven falling to the earth. Um, back in 1908, uh, a meteorite hit Siberia. And this is what the crater looks like now. It's now turned into a lake. Um, but there's pictures there that uh, the forests were laid flat for, for miles and miles. And uh, it's interesting that Isaiah describes these same kind of events. He said that the earth will stagger to and fro like a drunken man and be moved out of place. So lots of these Prophets are seeing the same things. Joel describes as he speaks about the sun and the moon being darkened. Um, just in the last few months, you may have read that, oh yeah, we're going to have three blood moons, right? And you know, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of folks were like, ooh, it's going to be this and that. And it's like, oh wait, let me see. I haven't seen, let me see, the sun didn't turn dark. Oh wait, I haven't seen any meteors falling. Uh, no, I think, I think it's just a, an eclipse, 
right? So I think we're okay. But this all will happen. Verse 14, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up. Now, this is amazing when you think about it. The physics that could go on here, we, we could talk for days. Um, the whole uh, space-time continuum, uh, the matter and antimatter. I mean, we could go on and on, but we won't. Just know that the sky receded as a scroll. And, and I don't know what John was seeing, but maybe the clouds were building to thunderheads. I love it when you watch the Weather Channel and they speed things up and the clouds, woo, and all of a sudden it just takes off and rises. Maybe that's what John was seeing, was, was that sky was just moving across. Uh, I don't really know, but I just know that you know, if you were to see that kind of turbulence in the sky, you know, an observer on the ground could think that literally the sky was splitting apart. Okay? Just imagine that fast-forward video in your sky above your house. Okay? Just, just amazing. And then it says, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Um, as a result of this great convulsion of the earth, massive land transformations occur. Now, we live on the San Andreas Fault. As you go across, as you go down 330, you go across the largest fault line in the United States every day. And uh, when that shifts, okay, because it's, it's a shifting fault. It's, it's like it's not going to open and everything gets sucked in. It's a shifting fault. And we're supposed to have like a, a 10 meter movement. That's 30 feet, okay, that that's going to shift. And so everything is just going to be um, shaken, right? It's, it's, it's going to be wild. Obviously, such a violent shaking is going to create unprecedented destruction and loss of life. Loss of life. And as the conclusion of this six-seal disturbance, you know, it's amazing when you think about it that the displacement of what we would call terra firma, what we're so used to walking on solid ground, it's not going to be solid. Suddenly, nothing is stable. Right? Talk about nonlinear, right? Nothing is stable. Not even the earth under their feet. Verse 15, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? These events are of such magnitude that everyone is affected. Everyone is affected. Okay, when the press, when the, when the price of gas rises, some of us feel it more than others. Okay, but when this happens, it affects everyone. Every one of these people, every level of socioeconomic status, they're impressed with the fact that you know what? This is the day of the wrath of the Lord. It's come, and their judgment is about to take place. It's going to be painfully obvious to them. They even say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They're asking, hide me, take me out now. Um, they try to hide from the one that's sitting on the throne and they realize that the day of divine wrath is, is there. And the chapter closes with the question, for the day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? And the answer, family, is obvious. 
Only those who avail themselves of the grace of God will be able to stand. Only those who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be able to stand. You can do that before or you can do that after. If you do that after, it's going to become very, very hard to share your faith. I mean, you're going to be killed. By contrast to the judgments which are inflicted upon a Christ-rejecting world, believers in this present age are promised to escape that judgment, which the world deserves. The people who trust in Christ are not only uncondemned in this world, but have eternal life as a member of, of our family, of God's family. By contrast, the unbeliever shall never see life, but lives under the coming wrath of God. My challenge for you this week is to think about those loved ones, family, friends, neighbors, those that don't know the Lord, and they're going to have to endure this very scary future. So my challenge to you is to be quick to explain why Jesus came the first time so that they don't have to dread him coming the second time. If you do not have assurance of eternal life tonight, and you don't know that you're going to be spending eternity in heaven with us and with the Lord, um, we would love to make those introductions. If you don't know where you stand and there's a question, let's pray. If you would like to recommit your life and say, Jesus, I I want more of you, come on down after service. We'll chat. We'll pray with you. We'd love to. Let's pray. Father God, we do love you and we thank you for the promise of your word in terms of eternity. We continue to ask that you would show us great and mighty things as as a family. We continue to ask that you would put uh, just that spark in our heart that would share your love so that our loved ones, our friends, our family uh, won't have to endure this. Help them to understand that we're sharing in love. But Lord, we just can't wait that you call us and say, come up hither, that we would come and join you. We love you. We praise you. And in Jesus' name, amen.